running up that road, running up that hill, running up that building. Oh yes, we are fully back, fully up and running into the things that are stranger. That last episode that I commented on, um, what was it, episode 7 of season 4, I thought was the best episode of Stranger Things I'd ever seen. (laughs) Was I wrong? And I thought about maybe just doing the finale, and then I was like, well, there's only one episode in between the two that I would then cover, so I thought I might as well do this one in between as well, because it's a bloody good one. So... Got a special treat for y'all. We are doing... This is going to be a two-parter podcast of the last two episodes of Stranger Things. The first one being an hour and a half episode. The second one being a two and a half hour episode. So I'm going to do two hours of each on part one and part two. Or at least that's what I'm going to aim roughly to do. Uh, Obviously, spoilers galore. There will be spoilers left, right, and bloody central. So if you haven't seen it, go watch it. Switch off this podcast now, immediately. Well, pause it, watch the episode, come back to it. Come back to the pod. You're missing good pod if you don't. (sighs) What you like. Anyway, without further ado, let's crack on with Season 4, Episode 8 of the absolute phenomenon that is Stranger Things. So we get straight back into the swing of things, seeing uh, the digitally de-aged L after having absolutely bitch-slapped Vecna slash number one slash the orderly through the very first portal into the uh, upside down. The interdimensional portal. Um, There's something really cool about someone having like blood dripping from their eyes. It always reminds me of um, Johnny Depp in, what's it called? Once Upon a Time in the West, which is a film I'll definitely cover at some point because that film's awesome. Directed by Robert Rodriguez. Uh, yeah, I don't know, it's just aesthetically sort of costume-wise and everything, it just looks badass. Um, and then it wraps up, like just adding that little bit at the start wraps up the whole, because we've had so many flashbacks of L being like, Oh, sorry, with um, Papa coming into that room and being like, what have you done? And for the whole time, at least I was under the impression of like, oh my God, Elle is actually a murderer. You know, it sort of, until we saw in the previous episode, number seven, uh, number one going on that massive rampage, as in the person number one, not episode number one, because like I said, it's in episode seven. Try to keep up. Um, so we, yeah, so we, we it properly sort of caps that off. And that's something I will say now and I'll probably repeat later on in part one or part two of these pods is that's what has been fan bloody-tastic about the climactic three episodes of this season is how they're really tying up a lot of plot points you know plot points that were exposed in the earlier seasons like even one and two and making sure that they're not leaving anything open, like anything that was brought to the table is being addressed, it's being capped, or it's being progressed, which is such a... It sounds so simple to say it's like, you know, a good thing to do from a writing perspective, but there are a lot of shows or films or things that will sort of... Sometimes you can leave things artistically ambiguous, you know, like make up your own decision about 
you know the the end of a film or something um you make your own decision about what's in the case in pulp fiction make your own decision about uh what happens after the credits roll in no country for old men for example um but there's there's those are good examples of it but there are lazy examples of it where the creators just ah oh, fuck this plot point like gonna call you out lost I feel like Lost did that a lot. And then when they did give you solutions, it was like some bullshit that didn't make any bloody sense. Like, I'm pretty sure I gave up on season two of Lost, but I've asked people that finished it all and they said that that smoky demon thing that was dragging people off was like never fully explained. Um, just laziness, laziness, lack of imagination, sort it out. But Strange Things does this really well. So then moving on to Nancy still being... Um, with Vecna being possessed by him and sort of seeing a flashback of his childhood getting tattooed by uh, good old Papa and his husky voice. Uh, real sort of simple setup for that in the sense that like we we zoom out from something on the table to see them being tattooed. Then there's a quick zoom in on what he's tattooing on him. Uh, and then it really starts to amp up when when Nancy when when Papa turns to Nancy as Vector, uh, and then she runs out into the hallway. And there's a real dramatic. She's in the center of frame, and again, symmetry. If you've listened to my pods, you know that I have commented on how much directors love a bit of symmetry because they do because it works and it looks nice. Um, so then there's like a dramatic pullback in the hallway so that Nancy can see all the carnage that uh, number one caused when he was on his rampage because again we're in a flashback uh, and then as she starts like running and sprinting through the corridors the camera what we call a Dutch angle if you haven't heard of that so it's when the camera tilts beyond the horizontal so you know obviously if it's a horizontal shot where it looks normal and then if you imagine it tilts on its axis slightly not quite into a, a vertical or a portrait shot it just tilts slightly on the axis in, axis in between vertical and horizontal and that's called a dutch angle and it creates discomfort and a sense of unease uh, again if you've heard this and i'm preaching to the choir don't worry about it i'm sure you'll survive if you haven't heard it and you would like a further explanation of what Dutch is or you'd like to see some more examples of Dutch, Google is your friend. Use that. Uh, so, yeah, Nancy's running around. There's And then when it cuts back to Steve being like, guys, we need to wake Nancy up. The camera is, it's not doing static shots. The camera is moving either towards uh, the points of focus like the characters or past them. So it, we get a sense of motion and it also creates a sense of sort of like chaos and pace and anxiety so we're, we're straight in there you know there's that sort of quiet opening with uh 11 and then we're straight back in there with the action and uh, <laughs> okay i've seen this last episode sorry this second to last episode and the last episode um and i'm assuming if you've listened to this if you're listening to this pod you've seen both of them too um, but i'm not i'm going to try not to talk about things that happened in the last episode while i'm analyzing this episode but fuck eddie is like oh he's so good he's like from the minute he's because i'm a metalhead right those who are listening to this and either know me or maybe you, you're listening to this and you don't know me or you don't really know me I like all types of music, hip-hop, grime, reggae, ska, whatever, but lo-fi, whatever. But my absolute go-to, my absolute 
creme de la creme favorite happy place is heavy fucking metal it's the shit so eddie for me has been a spirit animal throughout this entire season and then that clip where because they know that music can cure uh you from like vecna's hypnotism or possession or whatever you want to call it so they're like panicking frantically in in um eddie's room and the camera's doing quick pans to all of them to sort of show that everybody's like you know frantically searching all over the place to find something to get nancy out of this thing but obviously nancy we know her to be a pretty you know prim and proper you know basic bitch no i'm kidding <laughs> like just a prim and proper kind of kind of lady and um or as bill burr would say lady uh so um so when they're frantically trying to find this music and they're like oh we need madonna or whatever blah 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 not we need music and then eddie like snatches an iron maiden tape from uh thingy's hand he's like this is music and i was like yes preach to the choir my man <laughs> i just felt that because you know being a metalhead, I have had that throughout my life. Like, oh my god, all that screaming is not music. It's music. It's good music. It saves the fucking day. And then uh, there's a classic horror trope. You may have picked up on it. Because um, the, the big thing that Stranger Things are doing in this season in particular is upping the horror factor. I think it's partly because the kids are older now, so they can sort of, uh, you know, up the... Uh, what's the word the maturity factor i suppose maybe you know it's a bit more violent it's a bit more scary basically than previous seasons when the kids were younger they got more license to up the maturity so a classic horror trope when nancy's trying to break down uh, the wooden blockades from the door so she can escape vecna uh the camera will sort of be showing there's an angle down to on her face so down again i've spoken in previous podcasts about if the camera's looking down at someone um, it's not showing them as a high status so normally that's used for someone who's in a position of like weakness or lack of authority and then when the camera tilts up is normally towards the authority figure or the person in power but in this case it's pointing down towards nancy to sort of show her victim status if that makes sense uh, but then also it's her head and her enormous bonnet is blocking anything in the hallway behind her so the audience is like, oh my god, is he going to be there behind her? We can't see. So you're, you, you, it forces the audience's imagination to basically up the scare factor and up the stakes. Because you're like, oh my god, is he behind her? We don't know yet. And then every shot we see is either like from the side or her blocking the way. And then there's an even closer shot where it's like sort of directly in her face. And we can't see anything behind. And then all of a sudden we hear Vecna's creepy like, Nancy, from behind. So it's just real sort of simple shots used effectively and then with the flickering lights that creates a bit of you know it's a bit epileptic in a way it sort of creates um i don't know like a frantic kind of uh, i guess horror to it because it, when a light flickers and then all of a sudden like it's dark and then it flicks on again and then there's someone scary there it's you know just ups the ante the walls are covered in blood there's dead orderlies there's dead patients you know it's it's just a awesomely decorated scene I just realized I called Nancy's hair a bonnet when the phrase is barnet. So if you were there screaming into your headphones going, you bloody idiot, it's barnet, then you were right. And I've corrected myself now. So I don't know if I said this on the previous podcast but about Stranger Things, but I'm going to say it now. Is that I think um, Vecna, they've somewhat gone down the like serial killer route with him in the sense that like, 
I think I heard somewhere, or maybe I read somewhere, that some serial killers, they they get bored of doing certain things to certain victims and they have to, like, up the ante. So, like, with Vecner, you know, the first one he's sort of stalking, um, I can't remember that cheerleader's name, the one who dies in the first episode. Uh, and then he, like, it's like he starts to toy with his victims more and more. Like, the first one's kind of just, like, stalking and then killing. Uh, and then now when we jump forward to, like, what he's doing with Nancy, though he's not... He doesn't actually sort of kill her in this moment, um, but he seems to toy with her a lot more, and he seemed to toy with Max a bit um, in that fourth episode as well, where I think it was the fourth one. Um, yeah, he's just sort of like he likes that sort of power play and and really messing with his victim a lot more. Um, I can't. Uh, I thought about this the other day, and I was like, I need to remember that for the pod. I feel like I'm not really explaining it very well, but if you know much about serial killers or anything, you might get what I mean. Um, so it's like they're just growing. As I don't know, I can't really word it. It doesn't matter. <sighs> Who cares? Just a quick one about some useful camera things to create a sort of tension or intrigue for the audience. So when all those Russian guys are shooting the main. Uh, Demogorgon that's in the prison and then Hopper and everybody else are in a different room and they hear screams and cries from a different Demogorgon because the other one's being shot because you know it's a hive mind so they're all connected when one feels pain they all feel pain kind of thing so there's a pan up to this like ominous looking staircase as we hear the screams of it sorry not a pan like a, a track zoom like a dolly zoom kind of thing um, again, dolly or tracking is when the camera's on a set of sort of effectively like a train track set. Uh, so, and then it pans around to the gang, like Hopper and everybody, and zooms in a little bit on them to sort of show that they're focusing on what we've just seen on screen, the staircase and the door. But then the zoom in is sort of, for some reason, like zooming in on people's faces creates that sort of like, uh, or tension or uh, intrigue or whatever it, whatever it might be it's just a that movement of the camera just creates that uh, so then when it goes back around to the so there's a, a short reverse shot which is just when it cuts back to the stairs and then it cuts back to basically just hopper and like zooms in purely on him and then he moves out of frame so the zoom in on him is to sort of show the audience that he's taking responsibility for this and it's his sense of duty to deal with it and then when he obviously moves out of frame he takes Murray's gun and then goes and deals with it so just those sort of quick zooms in or like dolly tracks and things it's just a real simple good way to sort of create uh, a sense of tension amongst the audience and then a sort of sense of like the characters having to uh, take up arms to deal with it if that makes any sense um, if it doesn't make sense just ignore that part of the podcast I'm sure you'll be all right Music's always been great in Stranger Things, um, but it really is the difference in that scene where Elle's lifting up the uh, Nina tank thing. It really is the difference between some person just levitating a tank and an epic superhero lifting a tank. Do you see what I mean? So we have the the music start to sort of build in this airy kind of choir-esque sort of subtlety in the background which sorts of create it creates a bit of a can she do this and it's very 
like Luke Skywalker in The Empire Strikes Back, like, can he lift his X-Wing out of the mud? And then as she starts to do it, Elle, I mean, starts to lift it, the music builds and builds and, you know, starts to sort of reach its crescendo as the thing gets higher and higher. And it's very epic. Uh, and it literally is the difference between that scene being great or just boring as hell, you know? Because not a ton happens, like camera wise or anything in terms of like there's no you know state of the art well it's all state of the art but there's no like groundbreaking camera work or anything like that and you know and, uh, you know the lighting's great and everything it, it does exactly what it needs to do for the scene but that the music in that scene is the difference between it being great or just you know being a sort of a scene that would otherwise have ended up on the cutting room floor as they say Actually, the lighting and that well, there's a lot of like flashing orange lamps, and it reminds me of uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, especially where the the Nina Pod looks a little bit like one of those. Um, I don't know if it's Apollo something or other, one of those like moon landing pod things. So it gave me those kind of vibes. Wouldn't be surprised if that's what it was inspired by. How bloody lovely, but heartbreaking at the same time, is that scene between uh, Will and. Mike, in the back of the car, when uh, John, Jonathan, Jonathan, when he's driving, and uh, Mike starts freaking out about L potentially, um, you know, sort of seeing him as ordinary and, and losing interest in him, ultimately, is his concern. And then Will delivers, a, he beautifully delivers it, but it's beautiful and it's heartbreaking at the same time, this monologue where he's speaking from his own heart about himself, but uh, like he's using his own feelings and everything to make his point about how, about Elle and Mike's relationship. You know, he's, he's he is speaking about Elle and Mike, but he's also speaking about himself and Mike because uh, it's sort of been suggested throughout this season very subtly that um, Will has feelings for Mike. And this sort of confirms it. And it's, oh man, the kid does so well. So um, this is one of the things that's great about season four. Is like I was saying about how they round off a lot of plot points uh, or, uh, you know, address a lot of plot points and, and cap them off or open them up a little bit more and things. Uh, one of the other things that's amazing about this season, specifically the last three episodes, is everybody gets... Like every character, not only do they get adequate adequate screen time, because yeah, that's one thing, but if they're not doing anything with the screen time, then like who cares? But pretty much every character gets not only ad adequate screen time, but actually something to do, like, you know, either some epic task or some epic monologue that drives the story or drives the character relationships or something like this. And or, you know, Will's barely in season one for obvious reasons. And I feel like he didn't really have tons to do in season two or three. And I feel like the writers, the Duffer, is it Duffer or Doofer? The Doofer brothers have really sort of rectified that with this season, specifically this scene. Because he really sort of gets the chance to shine. And it, it gives his character some more dimensions. You know, he's not a 2D just, I play Dungeons and Dragons. Like, they really flesh him out and, and, you know, give him a lot to do. And then it's beautifully directed as well, this scene, because when he's talking really personally about himself, uh, I can't quite remember the lines 
so I won't bother sort of paraphrasing them, but when he's talking specifically about himself and, and maybe the idea of like losing Mike, he's, oh no, sorry, about that's it, when he's talking about being a mistake, he said that oh, maybe she feels like a mistake, but he's really talking about himself, and he faces out to the to the window, and we only see sort of Mike out of focus behind him, but then when he starts talking about how great Mike is again, he turns around back to Mike and looks Mike in the eyes. So I don't know if those would have been like character choice, sorry, actor choices for the character in like rehearsal, or if the directors would have said like specifically on this line, look out of this window or whatever, or maybe when the actor did it, they went, that's great. Make sure you look out on that line and then look back on this line. And I'm sure the continuity uh, person would have been like, you looked out the window when you said this line, but then on take two, you were looking at him. So don't forget to look back at her, the window because continuity people are great like that. I love them. Don't get me wrong. They're really useful on set. Um, that wasn't a slight what they do. It's it's a hard job to do. Um, but my point is, is that the direction of that scene, because it's just two lads talking in the back of a car, but the direction of, you know, having him say some lines out to the window, but they're sort of to himself and admitting things to himself and also admitting things to Mike... Uh, but then, you know, looking back to it, it's just, it's a wonderfully constructed scene and it's heartbreaking. And you've got the addition of Jonathan sort of clocking what's going on, looking back in the in the rearview mirror and looking sort of quite empathetic and sad about his brother's situation. It's a very, very sweet scene. Um, I really liked it. And absolute kudos to the kid who plays Will. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Also, under that checkered shirt of his, secretly jacked, you can tell that kid's been lifting some timber. Fair play to him. Because, uh, you know, compared next to Will there, no offense to Will, but Will's looking pretty slim. And then old Will's been like, yeah, I pump some iron, mate. <laughs> Again, just to talk about them uh, bringing in those plot points from things suggested in season one. Such good writing. So it's when Papa's talking to Elle about, you know, when she passed out and uh, back when she was a kid after seeing away um, number one slash Vecna slash the friendly orderly as he's listed on IMDb. Um, he speaks, uh, Papa speaks about, he always sort of knew that Henry was still out there uh, slash Vecna slash number one slash the friendly orderly. Friendly orderly. He speaks about he always knew he was still out there, and then we see a flashback of when he was sending those dudes in hazmat suits into the upside down. So, but like back then in season one, we were given no sort of context for that other than oh, they have a portal and they're running, they're doing some science to see what it's all about. Whereas now we have the context of oh, that was with purpose, that was to try and track down Henry and, and things like that. So, it's just really bringing things back full circle you know they're not just having these throwaway scenes in season one they're actually being sort of ret not retconned because that implies they were a mistake in the first instance but they're being like you know uh given a greater sense of purpose and value and it's just such satisfying writing god damn the writing in this season is absolutely fan bloodedastic and then the whole um what's his face the nice scientist papa's mate who's like, he hands her the folder and says, oh yeah, when we saw the murders and we saw the eyes, we knew that was Vecna sending a message. I That didn't even occur to me that they had the same eyes. You know, it just I just thought it was a gnarly thing to do to his victims. But yeah, it's 
sending a message. Great writing again. And that wasn't even a throwaway from like previous seasons. That was within the same season. So gosh darn, these Doofa brothers write good. When Papa uses the dam and pencil metaphor to explain what Henry slash Vecner slash the friendly orderly slash number one is doing, <laughs> I'm going to stop doing that, uh, is is doing by taking these victims and creating these portals. Uh, excellent sound usage because no pen creaks or cracks or snaps that loudly. But as he's you know making his point saying it, cracks create pressure builds up blah 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 there's a bit of music in the background like a, a sort of a held or sustained note uh that creates a bit of tension but then the, we hear the cracking uh of the pen uh, pencil sorry uh, start to build and then when it actually does snap there's a big echoey like uh crack that goes along with it um you know it's it's way more amplified than what if you cracked a pencil now in your in your house or whatever would would sound like but it makes his monologue and the point of his monologue that much more impactful by using that sort of soundscape. So, you know, excellent work. Sound design team, good for your 10 points for Gryffindor. And then the comic relief of um, Papa's mate being like, oh yeah, that wasn't ominous at all. (laughs) (laughs) There's been some excellent comic relief in this season as well, despite all the dark and the violence and the murder and stuff. A quick note as well, when uh, the four amigos, Hopper uh, and the rest, escape the prison via that tunnel, they then all sort of stand up in a line, looking back at the prison, happy that they did it, and then the camera only zooms in on Hopper's face and his sort of reaction to it, and you might sort of think like, oh, well, why are they just focusing on him? He's not the main character, Winona Ryder's next to him, and, you know, X, Y, Z. But uh, the reason that they're focusing on him I think is because you know he's the one that has sort of been in there suffering the longest like yeah the security guard did end up becoming a prisoner when I say the security guard I mean if you've seen Game of Thrones it's the man with many faces uh but Hopper has ultimately been the prisoner like the longest so he's probably the most grateful to finally be rid of that prison so that's why they would zoom in on him if that was not clear for you okay good I love the Halloween reference of um, when Eddie asks if uh, what he calls a red, but it's Max, has got a ski mask or a bandana or something to like conceal his identity because obviously he's still a wanted man. So the uh, the next shot is cuts to him just having this uh, Mike Myers mask on, which is hilarious because he's wanted for being a killer, so he dons the mask of a serial killer. <laughs> and, you know, it being the 80s, Halloween being a big movie at that point. Just a... A funny little reference there. So I'm skipping forward quite a bit because, you know, there's a lot to cover. So we're in the gun store now. Um, and obviously, you know, there's been a few things throughout this episode that are loose commentary on the state of firearms in America and how easily accessible they are and perhaps shouldn't be. But this isn't a political podcast, this is a movie podcast, so I'm not going to go on a rant about that. Bad guns, you fucking idiots! Anyway, um, so they're in the gun store buying guns, and then Muggins comes over, the head basketball bloke, I can't remember his name, looking more and more disheveled. The costume department and makeup department, hair and makeup and all that, they're really doing wonders for 
showing sort of how distraught and disheveled and like at his absolute wits end this kid is you know his hair's not as quiffy and bouffant as it used to be uh you know his eyes are all not quite bloodshot looking but odd he looks a bit sweaty and then the, the music in the background starts to build up we get like a dum 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 sort of creating tension i feel like that's all i say on this podcast this creates tension this creates the fence but that's what it does all right at least in this case and the other cases is what's happening um and you know he delivers quite a sort of ominous little speech there with nancy talking about you know redirecting her shotgun and this that and the other great acting from him um great use of space you know like when uh he sort of clocks nancy he turns to her from the other side of the cabinet there's a bit of space between them but he's pointing a gun at her despite the fact that it's not a loaded gun or anything just him pointing a gun at her is a bit like whoa what you doing there buddy what you doing there gert and then you know he closes the space between them as per his monologue gets right up close to her invades her invades her personal bubble and uh yeah it's it's, it's good you know and then we've got um thingy's little sister running around with the trolley clocking all the other jocks that have turned up and every time you know we got that dum 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 in the background and then every time she clocks one of the other jocks she clocks the jocks is what she does uh we get like a you know so the soundscape is being used really well combined with um brilliant performances from nancy uh matey's little sister whose name i forget and the head jock whose name i forget as well so 10 points for me for my name recall this podcast the adorable kind of like big brother moment between eddie and uh god his name has escaped my head dustin good grief they're like two of my favorite characters in the whole thing and eddie's only been there for a season um and dustin's always been an og it's such a lovely like brotherly moment you know they sort of start play fighting and then he's like never change and then you because they have such a sort of a tender moment a sweet moment between them as sort of like friends and brothers you can't help but feel it's like foreshadowing something tragic um but there's nice almost like um what do they call it like synth pop music sort of in the background you know with it being the 80s and everything of course it's going to be synthy it's just a great sweet little scene i really like robin and steve um chatting there to, and she says um you know when steve's like, oh do you think we shouldn't be doing this and then robin says i think we're mad fools the lot of us and the camera pans really sweetly along um you've got nancy and max testing out the shotgun you've got dustin and eddie doing their brotherly shit like imaginary play fighting not play fighting each other but like they're imagining what they're going to do in this scenario like team tag and stuff and and then you got the Sinclair sorting out the spears it's just a real nice like um sort of pre-war kind of moment you know like uh if you've got like Lord of the Rings for example in the Minas Tirith battle where people are like sort of crapping their pants before you know the Urukai arrive and things like that it's a bit more like scary and ominous and in this one there is a sort of sense of potential doom or dread but it's it's all 
it's uplifted by the light tones of what we're seeing on screen in the sense that they're like you know it's, it's bright colors it's daylight um, the music in the background is it's kind of light and uplifting but it's slightly melancholic at the same time someone once used the phrase melancholic optimism which is a great phrase i don't know if that's quite what this is but it's kind of kind of suits it um and you know the the childishness of dustin and eddie in the background as well is sort of like it gives it an uplifting feeling so it's not the sort of same sense of dread and doom that like that pre minister of battle and lord of the rings gives you but you do get that sense of like you know they are preparing for war ultimately they you know they're putting their weapons together they're practicing their fighting moves and things um so it's a nice like pre-war kind of uh scene that we get here don't have a lot to say about this nanosecond shot we get but I, well i guess it establishes the sort of climactic end to this episode but as the military rolls in on um the the facility where uh, Papa keeps eleven and all that. Uh, there's just a real nice bird's eye view as like these four Humvee trucks like roll in and and slam their brakes on and all the dust is kicking up behind them and it's just a really cool shot uh, from above. That's all I have to say about it. Now I don't know much about the military in terms of like uh, tactics and stuff. Um, I know a few people that have like been ex forces and things and sometimes when you watch films with them. And you think you're watching something good, like some good like military execution of you know tactics or like breaching or uh, whatever it might be, and I'd be like, oh, this is cool, and then they'll be sat next to you, go, that's bullshit. Nobody would ever do that. That looks like shit. The stupid tactics. They'd all be dead. Blah blah blah. And you're like, oh, okay, I I know nothing. So I preface all of this by saying I know nothing. But when the military then burst into the facility, I thought it was pretty efficient. You know, the it reminded me initially when it's like quiet and everything, you've got the military police inside waiting for them to breach it. And then you've got the, the army dudes outside who breach it and then storm in. It reminded me a bit of uh, the start of A New Hope when you've got all the rebels waiting for Vader and the Imperials to like storm in, the stormtroopers storm in. So it's maybe it's somewhat of a homage to that. And then they burst in and they have like this formation where you've got these two dudes at the front with the riot shields and then they crouch down and people behind them pop up with machine guns and then the shields pop back up and things. You know, who knows if it would have been an effective tactic. Um, if you've got any military experience, you might be sat there going, Luke, you fucking idiot, it's terrible. And, you know, fair enough, you know more than I do. Uh, but I thought it looked pretty cool. Uh, I just like how, you know, regardless of whether it's an efficient tactic or not, I just like how it, it they're just storming through the tunnels of this facility like an unstoppable sledgehammer that's come to lay waste to all in their path and you do get that sort of sense of like pace from them that they are this unstoppable force kind of thing which makes it uh makes the sort of um makes the sense of danger for the characters in there like eleven and papa who we hope get out alive because we know that this particular band of military people are trying to kill eleven because they think she's dangerous uh, so you know that it, it increases the sense of danger by like by the fact that those uh army dudes that have infiltrated it aren't being held back or repelled or anything by the military police and the security that's already in the facility 
One thing I think I can say with confidence about the military is after the troops have gone in and, in air quotes, secured the area, I don't know if he would just swan in all nonchalant with his hat under his arm. That doesn't seem like he's equipped to go. There could be someone hiding in a cupboard or under a desk that they haven't spotted yet. He could pop up. I feel like the the general would want to come in looking a bit more switched on and a bit more ready to go, you know? Maybe put your hat on your head so your hands are free and maybe be holding a gun in case someone does jump out on you. I don't know. But like I said, I'm not in the military, so... Then again, just commenting on the camera movement. So as the military guys have, you know, got rid of all the security and they're sweeping the area looking for Eleven and Papa, uh, the camera is always, you know, moving with them. So if they, like, burst open a door, it will pan towards them bursting open the door or it will, like, uh, probably be on a steady cam, which, again, I've explained in previous pods is normally when the camera is sort of strapped to some kind of harness on someone's physical body and then as they move obviously the camera moves with them so they might like move in towards military people as they like storm through uh, the hallway towards the camera and things so the camera's constantly in motion which is giving us this sense of like urgency of like how sort of quickly and efficiently these military dudes are sweeping the area i think the camera on the sniper as oh sorry i got something in my mouth <laughs> Uh, some kind of hair or something, I can't get it out. Anyway, I think the camera on the, on the for the sniper, when it's like sort of focusing on that sniper as he's trying to line up the shots after he's, you know, shot Papa and is lining up on L, I think the camera is mounted to the side of his gun because then as he sort of moves around with his gun looking down the scope, the camera's just sort of statically moving with him. That's a really cool thing to do. Really nice uh, use of camera work there. Uh, really effective. So, bravo! And then when Elle actually takes down the helicopter, from the moment she puts that second hand out and then, like, throws both her hands down towards the floor and lets out her classic scream. Whenever she goes OP and uses a lot of her, like, powers, she always screams. And then the sound kind of, like, doesn't cut out, but it does that thing where it sounds diluted and muffled. So we just hear, like, a a sort of a slow-mo of the helicopter blade spinning round and... We sort of faintly hear like a a distant sort of echo of her scream in the background as this thing falls to the floor in slow motion. And then as it lands, you know, the helicopter blade's still spinning and it's on its side. So it's, you know, chucking, uh, like chopping up and throwing out a lot of the metal from the trucks that it's falling onto. And then it lands and they all blow up and Elle stood center frame and the mushroom, not mushroom cloud, but the explosion is you know encompassing most of the frame and it's all symmetrical and everything it's just a brilliant shot like really cool scene where we finally you know get some real 11 op powers coming back you know it's just just good shit it's good shit you know what this final sequence actually is full of fantastic shots there's one where the camera tracks to the left from behind the debris and the fire and the smoke of the wreckage that Elle's caused and, you know, tracks to the left to reveal her down on her knees after sort of having, you know, exerted all that power. Um, there's a great shot of when Elle throws her collar to the floor after Muggins unlocks it. And then you get, you know, the sound department again doing their thing. As it hits the floor, there's like a where you can tell like the electricity of that collar is sort of diminishing. But then the shot holds on the collar on the floor. And then you see a few people's sort of like legs kind of out of focus to the sides of the frame. And then way in the distance out of focus is Muggins lying on his side and Elle sort of walking towards him. Really cool shot. It's sort of 
having her walking away from the collar is like her walking away from the restraints and the things that have sort of been um you know uh controlling her and keeping her under control her entire life controlling her and keeping her under control yeah cool great use of words there luke nice one uh anyway and then there's a real good pan that goes from like Elle and her friends pans behind the surfer boy or whatever is surfer dudes um minivan thing uh you know there's a bit of smoke before and then behind the van and then there's loads more smoke when we get to the other side of the van which is where we see all of the other dead scientists and muggins lying on his side so it's sort of like we go from the friends and everything on one side where it's all nice and happy then as soon as we've cleared from behind the van we then see carnage and destruction i don't know if that was deliberate i can only imagine it would have been but there's just so many brilliant shots in this closing sequence here just notice something as well i don't know if it's because of the stature difference between the actors but uh normally when papa and Elle are having a scene together they'll do that that power dynamic thing that i was talking about earlier in the sense of whenever the person in power is in frame it tends to be a shot from below looking up to them and then whenever someone who's not in power is in frame it's looking down towards them which is normally how they're shot it's definitely how they were both shot uh, earlier in in the scene um when Elle sort of has an argument with him and calls him a monster and says that she's going to leave just before he injects her in the neck that's sort of how they are and you know that might just be the fact that he's a good you know foot and a half taller than she is um, so they kind of have to do it that way, or it's deliberately done for the power dynamic. Uh, so in this case, at the end of the scene, where he's lying on the floor and she's kneeling next to him and he's dying, um, it might just be the fact that, you know, he's on the floor and she's on her knees, so there's a height difference that way, you know, she's obviously higher, but we do have those camera angles where it looks down on him as if he's the one without the power and up to her as if she has the power. So I don't know if that is you know, uh, a dink, or just happens to be the way it's shot because of their height difference or their levels difference of, you know, how they are laying or kneeling, or if it is done to show that power dynamic. Um, someone tweet the Doofer brothers and ask them. I'm, I'm kidding, don't do that. Nobody, nobody cares. I really like that Elle moves Papa's hand from her face and places it down on the floor before she says goodbye to him because it's like... It's like she's saying goodbye to him because she's outgrown him and outgrown his control, not just saying goodbye to him because he's dying. Uh, and then there's a real epic shot of the, the general. I don't know if he's a general or a colonel or whatever, but that military dude that's like hunting L. You know, we have a pan from or a track from behind some of the smoky debris that is, you know, it was their vehicles and things. Uh, and then we sort of see the, the general or the colonel or whatever, the leader of that squadron, um, Looking a bit miffed that he didn't get his target and now one doesn't have a ride home either and has lost some men in the process and things. But uh, there's this the screen is sort of split between uh, the sky and then like a sort of mountain range and the desert floor uh, behind him sort of, you know, creates a nice split in the screen. And then the sun is just setting behind that mountain. So I don't know if it's... Uh, if there's a genuine on-location shot in the sense that they actually did it out in a desert and had to wait for you know, the sunset and that sort of twilighty uh, sky. Uh, what do they call it? The golden hour where the sun starts setting? I think that's what they call it, the golden hour, because you have a limited time to shoot sunset things or sunset sequences. Uh, so I don't know with 
a production as big as Stranger Things, they probably would have had the budget and the time set aside to do it, but then they also would have had the budget probably to like CGI in a sunset and create it artificially. I don't know. Either way, it's a very nice shot. And then we get Dutch again as uh, what's his face? Muggins' papa is laying on his side looking at Eleven and the gang drive away into the distance. It's probably done to show that it's from his perspective and he's on his side but the camera angle is Dutch as as they drive away into the distance so there you go another one for you film fans out there great great editing when they're driving away in the surfer boy van and Elle's like if we don't get back to Hawkins uh, they're gonna die and Will's like who and then obviously as an audience we're going everyone and then we cut to them all driving in that Winnebago thing and it literally pans like the camera pans or cuts to everybody in a sort of semi slow motion kind of way as this like ominous kind of stripped back version of I can't remember what song it is but it's obviously it's a classic 80s song for Stranger Things Um, and it creates a real sense of impending doom and dread uh, as they you know Winnebago their way Winnebago their way to their demise um, is so good because instead of having like some dialogue fill in the blanks of L going, everyone, everyone's gonna die, we just instead cut to like our favorite characters or you know some of these characters that we like love from watching the show, and we're like, oh no, this lot are gonna die, no, you know. So it's just a great, um, great cut. All right, okay, good, thanks, bye. Well, not bye yet. We haven't finished yet. Stick around for more. And then with that same music, that stripped back 80s thing with the sort of piano and the drums and stuff building up to a big crescendo and then it gets all real epic. The like big bass kicks in as Max, um, I always forget his name, Lucas and his sister. I really shouldn't forget Lucas because my name is Luke. My name isn't Lucas, my name is Luke, but Lucas is obviously not too far away from Luke. So uh, yeah, I shouldn't forget his name, but him and his sister... And Max, you know, they step out of the Winnebago, um, go towards Vecna's big old scary Amityville horror-looking house, and it holds on that shot as they, you know, they've gone inside, and it holds on it, and the music's all big and dramatic and epic, and what a final shot! Because then where it cuts there, and you have the next episode to watch, you're just like, oh no, they're up against it. Here. It's just, it's just good TV, isn't it? So. Let's move on to episode. Uh, sorry, the final episode of this, and uh, we'll see how much we can jam into the next fourteen minutes of this pod before we give you a whole new other pod to cover the rest of that episode. Then we get the opening shot of uh, this final epic two and a half hour episode. Fuck me, this episode's good. It's all been good. Ah, oh, I. Okay, I always liked Stranger Things, always always loved it from the get-go, but this season is up there with some of the best seasons of any TV show ever, you know, like, this, the quality of season four is breaking bad, like, the wire levels of good, right, and I will argue that with anyone who wants to argue about it. I'm not saying the whole of Stranger Things has been up to that quality. I think all of Stranger Things has been legit awesome, but this season in particular is out goddamn standing. Uh, so yeah, we are, <clears throat> we open on 
uh, Moscow, or not Moscow, it's somewhere in Russia, who knows where. And uh, yeah, we get the big dark night sky sort of showing, what just shows the time of day, doesn't it? It's an establishing shot. But we get the helicopter there, nice big in frame, big wide on the helicopter, and the helicopter actually has propellers attached to it now, uh, which like it didn't in the, the previous episode. Uh, and then we get old Sergei doing a subulba. And when I say doing a subulba, I mean he sabotages something, but he sabotages the helicopter by removing a part of it and putting it in his little coat. Very subulba during the pod, uh, not podcast, the pod race in uh, episode one, The Phantom Menace, for my Star Wars friends out there. So we have a sort of tender scene between um, Hopper and Joyce. Um, you know where they obviously they they have previously sort of expressed their romantic feelings for each other and everything but like since uh being reunited they haven't sort of really had a chance to you know jump things back into where they kind of left off right so although they they both need to change but a normal couple would be like oh let's change in front of each other but because obviously things are a bit weird they sort of separate and change in in different places uh, so there's like a high up not quite bird's eye view shot but it's like a high up looking down shot of this kind of i don't know what you call it like uh hideout or whatever full of all these supplies and everything and we see them sort of move to different corners of the room with that sh one shot that sort of establishes that that space between them and then you know because they're hiding in privacy instead of the sometimes the shots of them with the camera are just you know right up there with them but a lot of them are shots from like, you know, sort of behind like a bookshelf where we can still see through, but the immediate foreground of the frame is dirtied by, you know, bits of shelves or boxes or just things in the way. So that gives the audience the idea that we're sort of peering through into something that's, you know, private. We shouldn't really be in there. We're sort of witnessing a, a private moment of like, you know, these uh, two characters getting changed and things. So it's just a cool way that the directors are... Uh, giving us that as opposed to just being like there's no privacy here the camera's right here you know there's these few sort of uh, dirtied frames that, that allow us that and then some excellent dialogue from the Doofa Brothers comes in which goes over what I was saying a minute, a minute ago about how they haven't had a chance to sort of like put their relationship back on track so after Joyce goes across to Hopper and they start talking uh, and they start talking about uh, what Hopper's been thinking about and, and this date that they planned that they never got to, to to go on. And Hopper's like, oh, you know, I've been thinking about ordering breadsticks and lasagna. And then Joyce is like, well, is that it? And he's like, well, you know, wine. And she's like, oh, okay, anything else? And he's like, well, dessert too. And she's like, yeah, of course, anything else? And then uh, he says something to the effect of like, oh, or she says, oh, you use your imagination. And he's like, who needs imagination? And then kisses her, you know. Uh, I paraphrased the hell out of that dialogue and absolutely ruined it. But it's it's real classy dialogue because it's there's so much rich subtext to that dialogue. Uh, you know, you don't need me to explain it to you. It's really obvious when you watch it. You know, it's not trying to hide anything. But the point is, like, sometimes if if you just have these two people outwardly sort of declaring their love and stuff for each other or... Uh, you know, outwardly stating that they want to, like, make up for lost time and things. It can be a little bit cheesy and a bit on the nose and it's a bit harder to swallow. So when you've got everything that they want to say to each other about, you know, how much they've missed each other and how much they, you know, want to 
be with each other in X, Y, Z. You've got all that going on, but it's it's all done through subtext when they're talking about food and wine and breadsticks. You know, it's, it's outstanding dialogue. Well done, doofer bros. Love a good quick cuts montage. Very Edgar Wright in Shaun of the Dead or, you know, any of the films that brilliant man has made. Uh, but as you know, as they're all going through the portal from Eddie's trailer into the upside down Eddie's trailer, uh, you know, and it's like one goes in, it's a quick cut of like them landing, them moving, the weapons landing, weapons being, you know, moved out of shot by various hands. Just excellent quick cuts because it's like they've got a job to do, they've got somewhere to be, they've got tasks to complete. And the stakes are very high, so it's pace, pace, pace. We need to get it moving. It could have either been like a very boring sequence of them going through it one by one with all their weapons and stuff, or they could have just brushed over it. Uh, but it also gives us a chance to sort of see what weapons they've kitted themselves out with. You know, the spears, the swords, the guns, the knives, whatever it is, and the shields that they've hammered nails into and things. It's, uh, it's a good way to do it without sort of spoon, spoon feeding it to the audience. Um, plus, just like a quick cut montage, and it's it's uh, sprinkled with a bit of humanity as well. You know, like when Nancy goes down and then Steve picks her up, they have a tender little will they, won't they look in each other's eyes. And then uh, when um, Eddie goes down, he has a kind of cocky like Wee, as Steve helps him up, and then as Dustin lands, as he's the last one to land, I think. He then sort of sits up like, whew, and then everybody just grabs him and yanks him up towards the camera and everything. It's like, you know, like sort of, um, yeah, it's just good shit. And then a terrible bit of foreshadowing. Um, as Steve asks Dustin and Eddie to like not try and be the heroes or anything. And then Eddie says, look at us, we are not heroes. And I want to curl up into a ball and cry myself to sleep. Anyway, moving on. And then we get the the music sort of like amping us up for what what's about to come, you know, getting in the zone. It's the that kind of low key action music on the on the soundtrack there, uh, as um, Nancy, Steve, and um, Robin are like walking towards the camera. It kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, the Devil's Rejects, just them out armed to the teeth with their guns and stuff, walking towards the camera. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, then we know we're like real sort of getting into it. I wasn't entirely sure if I liked the, uh, Steve's mate, the surfer boy character, to be honest, sometimes it was a little bit like cliched or whatever. It's just a out of his mind stoner, but so much of his comic relief has been really funny. Um, and I, I really like his dialogue when they're talking about like getting some sort of sensory deprivation tank, whatever it is for L. Um, and they're like, oh yeah, bathtub would for for the mind fight. He's like, oh mind fight, nice. And then like a bathtub would help. And he's like, yeah, gotta be clean to enter their mind, <laughs> like just stupid shit like that. But then he actually comes up trumps. You know, he helped them find the the base with the military stuff in the last episode. He helps them find the tank in this episode and everything. The tank is in the deprivation tank and all that. Uh, yeah, and then there's a again with an establishing shot because every time you cut from one scene with different with certain characters and then you move to a different scene with different characters, you've got to establish where you're at and what you're doing. So especially when it's the first time it's been seen in this episode, so we get this is more or less the same shot as we finished the last episode on. But there's a great establishing shot of the Amateurville Horror Vecna House 
but this time it's nighttime and there's a ominous glow in the attic uh to because we know that they walked in with those like um uv lantern things so that tells us where the characters are so we know they're in the house we see the blue in the top of the attic so we're like ah okay we're back in that house with those characters but they're gonna be up there so we're gonna cut into being in the attic and then we we do we cut into being up in the attic just simple stuff to help the audience understand where we are what we're doing what the geography of the scene is that kind of stuff there's so much to talk about and it's a really long episode so i'm gonna try to sort of minimize it uh, but there's an awesome like to and fro montage between like uh dustin and eddie prepping uh the um what is it called uh the trailer or whatever uh for you know their part in the plan and then you've got um eleven and will and everybody uh sorting out the pizza dough freezer and everything getting that all prepared and the the shots are mimicking each other like when dustin and that are dragging something along the floor to put on the side of the trailer it's when um, Eleven and that lot are like dragging or wheeling the pizza dough freezer out. And you know, when they're uh, sort of passing things along like a, a production line out of the freezer and onto the side, Dustin and, and Eddie are passing things between them. So all the shots like mimic each other and, and they're sort of intercut between each other. It's just a really nice little edit. Okay, I'm going to stop it there. I'm 22 minutes in and Eddie just said to Dustin... Are you ready for the most metal concert in the history of the world? And gosh darn it, is that a good scene. So I'm going to leave it there. We will pick things up next week with part two of the part eight and seven. No, part eight and nine of Stranger Things season four. Stranger Things season four, chapters eight and nine, part one of this podcast, part two of Stranger Things season four, episode eight and nine coming to you next week with many more tongue twisters. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. And rate, review, subscribe. I really appreciate all that stuff. Um, if you can give me five stars, don't give me four, don't give me three, don't give me two, don't give me one, don't give me none. Just go on any of the things that you listen to this shit on, Spotify, whatever, and give me five. Give me, f- give me five. Give me five. No, I'll ask nicely. Please give me five. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs>